Amen. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 6. Uh, And while you're turning, I think it'd probably be best to to start off with a little bit of a story. You guys okay with that? Okay, good. If you said no, I'd still do it anyways. Um, So, like Justin said, um, I I was a part of a team that helped start a, a campus ministry at the University of Maryland, almost six years ago now. And last year was a real prayer answered and a dream come true because we took our first of many uh, trips to a, an unreached area uh, in the jungles of Guatemala, the Kachi people. And uh, it was as jungle as you can get jungle, uh, living in a jungle hut, um, tents, it was amazing. It was one of the greatest weeks of my life, and we worked extremely hard at loving people well and sharing the gospel, and we wanted to end the trip with a, um, a blast, a party, a, a fun outing, and we had been told that there was this jungle waterfall by this place where we went, so we wanted to take an expedition to this jungle waterfall. And if you can imagine a jungle waterfall, it was everything that you probably are imagining. I'll never forget the journey there that took us about an hour and a half to two hours to get to this place. We are walking and you see one massive scorpion after the next. Snakes are passing over a trail prior to getting there. We had to scale this one cliff with this thin, almost fishing line with rope that is supposed to hold somebody like me from falling off the cliff. We finally get to this place, and it's a 35-foot drop. It's a big drop, beautiful waterfall right here in this gully. And my friend Josh, I looked at Josh, and I said, hey, man, you going to do this? He said, I don't know. I don't know. I'm afraid. I'll be honest. I'm afraid. I said, it's okay. That's how you, you, you conquer fear by doing what you're afraid of. I talk to my kids about this all the time. That's what, there is no, there is no uh, courage without fear. So we talked about, let's do what we're afraid of. And uh, he said, okay, as long as you're down there with me, I'll be okay. If I can jump and you're in the water with me, I'll be, I'll be okay. So he gets up there, I jump, he gets there, he's standing at the edge of this waterfall for, I, I swear, at least five minutes. And I am just calling to him, Josh, you just have to jump now. The longer you stand, the worse this is going to be, just jump. Josh jumps. <clears throat> He hits the water, and I'm looking, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. At this point, I'm getting nervous, because he should have been up a long time ago. And right as I'm about to dive in, it's probably like the 12-second mark to go and find him, he comes up, and when he comes up, he comes up with fists clenched, and eyes wide open doing this right here. And I grab him because it dawns on me he doesn't know how to swim. <laughs> I grab him and I have never ever pulled anyone to safety who's drowning. Have, has anybody done this? Everybody's been told, hey, if, when you have a drowning person, they will beat you down, literally in the water. He did that to me. And so I'm, I'm yelling, Josh, relax, I got you. I finally get him to the side and I look at him And I said, Josh, what are you doing? 
And I said, you told me that you could tread water. And he looked at me in the eyes and he said, no, I told you that I could not tread water. And so I'm looking at him. I I burst out laughing, but I looked at him and I said, you and me have got to be on the same page right now. It would have been a much better idea to go to a swimming pool and go on in the kiddie end and do that than what we just did. We laugh about it. It's a funny story, but I I share that with you to, to set up what we're about to talk about and Isaiah 6 to say, I don't think that there could be a more important thing for you as a church than to be on the same page as it relates to who God is. You with me? Like when you hear this word God, when you think of God, what comes to your mind? Are you on the same page? And if not, Isaiah 6, or if you are, Isaiah 6 will help us because it is one of the most magnificent visions of the glory of God and the holiness of God in all of the scriptures. And so my prayer is that God would awaken us anew or a first time or a 300th time to see his glory even deeper than we have before. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and then we'll go to verse 7. Here's what we read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You read verse 1. This is how we're going to essentially walk through this vision together. I don't have any points for you. So if you're one of those people that wants me to tell you what points I'm going to make, sorry. We're just going to walk through this as a vision, as a story. Okay, you with me on this? In the year that King Uzziah died, if, if you know anything about this guy... He was a good king, man, ruled for 52 years, and Israel knew nothing but peace and prosperity. It was a good time. He was a good leader, and then he dies. Now, that may be difficult for us to get our minds around what you might be thinking, feeling, wanting to say or do when a particular king or ruler that has brought peace and prosperity to your life dies, but I want to encourage you to try and imagine what that would feel like. Who's going to lead you now? Are we open to attack? Are we vulnerable? Are we going to make it? Are my kids going to make it? How are we going to feed this person or that person? Is my business going to be successful? These are the kinds of questions that are starting to occur. And then, in this moment, God shows up and he says... I want to show you who the real king is, Isaiah. 
The real king reveals himself in a moment of despair and suffering and confusion and uncertainty. Look at verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This picture, this vision is unbelievable. I want I want to ask you to do something with me, and I just want to ask you to imagine something. I want to ask you to imagine that you were the first and only person in this room about 20 minutes ago. And when you walk in through those doors, the sight that you walk on is immediately when you look down, you see a robe. And as you look over to that corner, it stretches there you're looking in the middle, there's nowhere on this floor that the robe does not fill. And then you look up here and you see a giant throne. And on this giant throne is the Lord sitting there. When you look this way, you've got these gigantic angelic creatures that when they stretch their right wing out, it's going through the the roof here. And when it stretches its left wing out, it's going through the roof there. It's doing the same thing on this one. And they're constantly calling to one another and saying this one phrase over and over and over again. And when they do, the foundations of heaven shake, which is not an easy thing to do. The place is filled with smoke. What are you thinking in this moment? I wonder who's going to win the game later today. Seriously, go there. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Do you want to do the same thing that Isaiah does and hit the deck? This is a massive picture of the Lord. When you look at verse 2, you have these, these angelic creatures called the seraphim. That literally means burning ones. That's what it means. In other words, if you looked at these angels, it would appear as though they were on fire. They have six wings. With two, they cover their face. Why? Lest they see God and die. With two, they cover their feet. Why? To cover their creatureliness. We see this over and over again in the scriptures. With two, they fly. Why? To worship without end. And they call to one another without stopping, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But here's a question I want to ask you. I don't know if you've ever wondered this. Why are they saying the word holy? I mean, would you think that maybe another word might be better? Would anybody else prefer to use another word? Grace, grace, grace. Love, love, love. Mercy, mercy, mercy. If we polled our culture, all of us, Christ followers, non-Christ followers, would we use the word holy? I don't know. But why, why holy? Here's a question I want to ask you. What does it mean? What does holy mean? I want to give you 30 seconds and I want you to talk to your neighbor, and I want you to answer it. Can you do that for me? Okay, talk to your neighbor, define holy, and then we'll come back together. Ready, go. (coughs) 
Okay. What'd you come up with? I don't know if y'all do this on a Sunday, but this is how I like to roll. I don't even, this is not normal for me. I, I like living rooms, couches, and a lot of back and forth. So what'd you come up with? Fear? Pure. Good, good. What else? Set apart. Perfect. Divine. Any others? Righteous. These are all good and all true. When something is spoken of as holy in the scriptures, it is talked about as other or separate. Meaning that this particular reality, be it an item or a person, is set apart from common or normal use and set apart to a God-centered use. Are you tracking with me? So that's why we read of things like the Holy Scriptures or Holy Land or Holy People, right? We have these in, in the Bible. But here's the question. If we're talking about separateness or other, question then becomes which most times people stop, oh, holiness means separate from or other. Here's the question that I think the Bible begs us to answer. Separate from what? And if you think about it, I think you might come to the conclusion that holiness or God's holiness means that he's separate or other than anything and everything that isn't God. So there's God and there's everything else. But hold on for a second. How many of you really think that the angels are, in effect, saying separate, separate, separate? Or moral, moral, moral? Or perfect, perfect, perfect? Does that, like, huh, really? They really just saying separate, separate, separate? I don't, I don't know that that fits. So we start digging a little bit more, and we ask the question, what's he separate from? And then we say, well, he's separate from everything that isn't God. There's God, and then there's creation. In other words, there's an an infinite qualitative difference between God and everything else that he has created. In other words, God is in a class all by himself. He is one of a kind. He is supremely unique, in other words. So if you want the best way to think of God's holiness, I think from Scripture that the best way to understand God's holiness is to see it as his supreme uniqueness or his one-of-a-kindness. That he's in a class all by himself. But what is he unique or supremely unique in? Well, everything. That's why God's holiness as it relates to his character is something that permeates his entire being. So his wisdom is holy wisdom, which means that it is supremely unique and unlike any other kind of wisdom. His love is holy love, which means his love is infinitely, qualitatively different than any other kind of love. It's in a class by itself. His mercy is holy mercy. His justice is holy justice. His grace is holy grace. All of this means that in everything that God is, he is supremely unique. He's one of a kind. Now, some of us may be sitting here thinking, okay, well, thank you. I want to ask you this question. What do we do with stuff or people or things or realities that are unique or one of a kind? What do we do with them? Answer? Limited editions. What do you do with limited editions? You treasure them. You usually pay a lot more money for them. You protect them. 
You do a number of other things to them. Why? Because the more limited something is, the more value we assign to it, right? You with me on this? The more limited something is, the more value is derived or it is worth. Now, here's the question, and this is where this gets to a very heart level. If God is supremely unique, absolutely unique, how valuable is he? Supremely valuable, infinitely valuable, absolutely valuable. And what I love about this passage is that what it does is it talks to uh, about our response to value or uniqueness, value. We're talking that God is supremely unique, therefore supremely valuable. But then what it says here in Isaiah chapter 6 is it's another word that we use a lot in the church. Glory. We use holy a lot. We talk about holiness and we sing about holiness a lot. But we also sing and talk about glory. Here's what glory is. It's God's holiness or his supreme uniqueness made visible so that you and I can see it. John Piper said that it's his holiness gone public. And look at this passage because this, I think, is one of the most marvelous things in Scripture and may, may radically transform your life. Holy, holy, is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth, is full of his what? What is full of his glory? The whole earth is full of his glory. This is what, this is what Isaiah 6 means. There is no place that you can go, no thing that you can touch or experience, no person, no reality that you can, with your five senses, encounter without it screaming to you of God's absolute uniqueness for you to see. His world, this world, is full of his glory. And as far as your and my daily experience goes, there is no more pervasive issue than this. Because unlike every other issue, this one meets you every second, at least waking second, of the day. Because every moment that you're awake, you are experiencing either pain or pleasure or some variation of those two or somewhere in between. This is how we live. And so the reality of how you interact with a world that is forever displaying the glory or one of a kindness of God is massive. So listen, sojourn. Laughing isn't worship, but it can be. Smelling and eating bacon isn't worship, but it can be. Feeling your five-year-old hug you around your neck isn't worship, but it can be. Singing songs about the glory of Christ isn't worship, but it can be. Driving a car or walking out and feeling the, the sun hit your face on a beautiful spring day isn't worship, but it can be. Why did God create the physical world? Did you ever think about that? Why? Why did he create the world? He created a world for us to live in so that in and through the vast diversities of his goodness, he could communicate his supreme or absolute uniqueness and goodness to us. 
It's God's way of saying, here is the best place where more of what I am can be experienced by you. The juiciness of a steak and the sweetness of a funnel cake is communication to you of me. Are you with me on this? C.S. Lewis has had a profound impact on my life, especially on the way that I experience the world. Uh, Marcel Prost once said that the real thrill of discovery lies not in finding new lands, but in seeing with new eyes. And Lewis and Isaiah 6 have helped me see the world with new eyes where I feel like a kid again. C.S. Lewis said this, I have tried since to make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. I don't simply mean giving thanks for it. One, of course, must give thanks, but I mean something different. Listen to this. Gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Adoration says, what must be the quality of that being who created such a thing as this? Gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Adoration says, what must be the quality of that being who created such a thing as this? Do you see the difference? Do you see if you walk outside today and feel the sun on your face, or feel your kid give you a hug, or eat an awesome lunch, or feel the wind on your face, or you take your shoes off and walk in the grass, do you get where it might lead you if you just for once start asking this question, what must God be like to actually create this moment and this experience. I don't know about you, but it feels and seems like most people in our world either live in the past or the future. They either live in the past of what they wish they would have done and haven't done, or they live in the future about what they want to do, but very few actually seem to be present. Isaiah 6 begs us to be present. Just enjoy God and all that he has made in this moment by asking a very simple question. What must God be like to create such a moment and experience like this? When I first saw this, uh, it changed everything. I just said it. I felt like a kid. I still do. Because I go outside and I see ants, and I, I start to think, did he have a sense of humor when he created these things? They are strong. I mean, mad strong. Why did he think, let's make them strong? I don't know. Or when you see a worm or a caterpillar or a bird or the sound they make or the laughter of a kid or the taste that you have when you eat a Snickers bar or I don't know, whatever comes to your mind, when you start to live this way, you feel like a kid again. But I think that's what God intends. That's what C.S. Lewis got. Have an adult's head but a kid's heart. And what Isaiah 6 begs us to do is to actually live differently by asking a different question. The different question is, what must God be like to create such an amazing world like this? Yes, it is a world of ruin because of sin, but it's also glorious. It is a glorious ruin. Don't miss the glory of it because the the world is filled with it and God invites you to experience it. But there is a problem, and it's the same problem why we miss this. It's in front of our face every second of every day, but we miss it. Why? Well, we're blinded. The fact that we don't stand in greater awe or marvel at God and enjoy Him and the world that He has made is because in our nature, apart from Christ, we are fallen. Thank God 
that he has solved that problem. But you see it in Isaiah chapter 6. There's a huge issue. In this moment, Isaiah does not see the holiness and glory of God as something that is a welcomed reality. He sees it as a threat, and he calls down judgment on himself, which is essentially what he says. Woe is me. I'm done. Just end my life and end everybody else's, because he calls down judgment on everybody else. Not only am I a man of unclean lips, but I dwell amidst the people with unclean lips. We are all unclean and worthy of judgment, is what Isaiah is saying. He exposes a troubling reality. He's not fit, and nobody is. No one that he had in mind, and nobody in this room. None of us are fit to stand in the presence of God, and his declaration of the human race is that we're broken, we're unclean, and we are in serious need of a serious solution. I want to ask you a question, and it's simply this. How do you, not everyone, you individually, how do you deal with the problem of living with yourself? You likely dealt with it this morning or right now. You know what I'm talking about because there are certain things in your life that you don't like. And you may have had thoughts this morning like, I hate this about me. I wish this weren't true. Why do I always do this? Why do I always think this way? Why do I always feel this way? When will I not do this anymore? Are you with me? Right? We, we do this. I know we do this. I'm a pastor, and I'm also a human being. This is who we are. This is what we do. We all have to face the problem of living with ourselves. And here is where this problem gets broken down. Just think about it. How little control you and I have over our thought life. How many of you would be willing to project every thought that you've had just over the last three hours on this screen for us all to see. Nobody in this room would be willing to do that. Much less if we expand it to 24 hours or 48 hours or 72 hours. But what if we did your whole life? Just your thoughts. How many times do you say to yourself, I'm not going to think this, I'm not going to think this, Go, I can't, and you, what do you do? You think it. Or what about your speech? How many times have you said this to yourself that you said, I'm not going to say this. I want to say this. I'm not going to say this. I shouldn't say this. And what'd you do? You said it. And relationships and conflict and chaos and disintegration are unleashed by just one simple phrase that you knew you didn't want to say and shouldn't say, but you said it. We have very little control over our thoughts. We have very little control over what we said, but Man, when we get to the will part of our life, that is where many of us have some serious issues. A goal. Holiness. Sanctification. Those areas in your life that you know that you don't want to do and shouldn't do, but we do them. Or the things that we shouldn't do, but we do them. There's an issue with that. How do you deal with that, guys? I know some of us in the house this morning, you would not be, you're not a follower of Jesus. Okay. You don't get the whole Jesus thing. You don't think Jesus is Lord. Okay. I think that everybody, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, 
will and does come up with an answer to this question, how you deal with the problem of living with yourself. But here's my question to you if you don't know Jesus. Is it working? Is it working? Because what I know is this. With this constant experience of not liking me or dealing with the problem of me, we have two universal cries. One is a cry of discouragement, of shame and guilt. I'm broken. I need somebody to fix me or something to fix me. And this cry is relentless. This discouragement is relentless. We also have a cry of hope that we want someone or something to fix this me or issue. And you can boil all of our hopes down into two possible roads. Road number one, self-salvation, which means that if you just do this system or you just follow this guru or if you just get a new cue, routine, and reward loop, it's all about habits, if you just get this, or in other words, if you can build enough fences around your life to protect you from the bad stuff and keep the good stuff in, then you'll make it. Essentially, it's you saving yourself by your thoughts, your willpower, whatever. The other one is the Christ salvation road. And on this road, this road is filled with people who said, I can't save myself. I can't do it. I'm not capable. I'm just not capable of saving myself. I need someone who is. If this isn't working for you, if the self-salvation project isn't working, the question I have, is there someone who can? Is there someone who can or something that can forgive you every time you fail and fulfill you every time you experience it? Well, the Bible's answer is a resounding yes. Isaiah 6 is a resounding yes. There is someone that we can place our hope in. There is somebody that can rescue, restore, and save us. And that answer is in verse 8. Look. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> I'm sorry, not verse 8. Verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atone for. Then, verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Massive transition from verse 7 to 8. Uh, in one sense, Isaiah's calling down judgment on himself. The next, he's like, pick me, please. I want to go with you. What happened? What happened between 7 and 8 was that Isaiah was rescued and saved and his sin atoned for. How? <laughs> How? How can, how can God do this? How is this just? We just atone for a sin? How does that even make sense? Let me tell you how it makes sense. Years and years later, there was another man that was shaken. And there was another man that was undone. And there was another man who called down something. But it wasn't judgment. This man said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in that moment, the temple shook. And the man hanging on the cross was Jesus Christ. And it was that man that this story begs us to look at then. That's the only reason that Isaiah's sin could be atoned for and your and my sin atoned for. His name is Christ. He is the Savior. 
in this dilemma he came, and in this dilemma and problem he solved. Sojourn, the Father treated Jesus like you and I deserve so that he could treat us like Christ deserved. This is the good news of the gospel, that if you are in Christ, God is pleased with you. And just like John 17 says, he loves you with the same love the Father has for the Son, because you are so closely united to Christ and in Christ that the Father treats you like Christ. And he treated Christ like you deserve. Now, how do we get our minds around this? I want to tell a story in closing because I think it communicates and shows the absolute uniqueness, one of a kindness or holiness of God in a way that may click. Um, <clears throat> I've had the privilege of discipling all kinds of college students. But there's been a few that my son has really loved, respected, and wanted to hang with. All, all athletes. They're either playing on the men's lacrosse team or football team. But there's one of them. His name is Brad Craddock. He's an Aussie. And he's their kicker. And he's really good. He won the Heisman for kickers last year. He will likely go to the NFL. And Brad would come to the house every week. And Carson would just want to hang out with him. And he loved it. So he asked Brad one day. He said, Brad, can, can, we, can I go to the locker room? Can I check out the locker room? And he said, yeah, mate. So he took Carson and I to the locker room. Car- Carson put on all these helmets, put on the pads. I had all these pictures taken with Brad, one of the coolest experiences that he's had. Then we went out in the field, and we were kicking field goals. It's dark. It's night. And all of a sudden, I hear out of the corner, hey, what are y'all doing on the field? And it was a security guard running at us with a, a light. And I'm like, oh, man. And then all Brad does is he just says, it's all right, mate. They're with me. And the security guard said, all right, that's cool, Brad. Stay as long as you want. <laughs> I, tell, I tell this story for this reason. Carson and I had no right to be in a locker room or the field. We had no right to be kicking field goals. But when we were with Brad, because of who Brad was, we suddenly had access to a reality, a location, a person, a place that we did not deserve to have. We had no business being there apart from Brad. Here's where this makes sense. The supreme uniqueness of God, I think, is most clearly enjoyed and experienced when you realize this. There are infinitely valuable, not infinitely, there are incredibly valuable things in this world that you will never get to. I guarantee you, underneath this school, if you dug really far, you would probably find some stones or gems or something that would make you a million dollars. There's one problem. You can't get to them. You can't get access to them. If this God is really real, meaning the holiness of God is something that's beautiful, not dangerous in one sense, that you can experience it with joy, not terror, and this whole world is full of glory, meaning this is like a a gigantic park for you to experience the joys of, why would you not want that? But if that's there and you can't get access to it, is that not a serious problem? And what does Jesus do? Jesus gives us access 
to the fullest of joys and pleasures forevermore in God. Why? Because when you and I are united to Christ by faith, just like what happened with Brad, we are welcomed into the throne room of heaven. We are welcomed into the place where God dwells so that on that day where the story ends, we will be his people and we will be with him. And what will we be doing? We will have a banquet and we will have a party because we've been granted access to the greatest joy, the greatest delight, the greatest reality, the greatest person, the greatest love, the greatest wisdom, all of that that's contained in a single personal reality whose name is God and Christ, because of your union with him, gave you access to it. Is that not a one-of-a-kind holiness? It is. And so as we take communion this morning, sojourn, this is a meal of welcoming and celebration. Christ has purchased access to the Father for you. Enjoy it. This is a meal that begs you to think of the future meal that we'll have with him. On that day when Christ comes and there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more sickness, we will dwell with God forever and we will experience the fullness of joy forevermore because Christ has given us access and Christ purchased this for us. If you don't know Jesus, listen to me. Christ invites you to him. So come to Christ. His invitation is simple. Repent, which means turn away from your life of self-salvation and cast yourself solely on Jesus for his salvation. If that's what you want to do, I'd, I'd invite you to talk to the person who brought you. You can talk to Justin down here. But that's what he invites you to do. So by grace, do it. So as I think we're going to be released by Roe, I, guess, I don't know how y'all do this. You just do what you do, okay? I'm going to pray and get off the stage. <laughs> Father, we love you. Jesus, we thank you for your life and your death, your resurrection. We thank you for purchasing for us. And we thank you that the debt that stood between us has been canceled by nailing it to the cross. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for loving us in spirit. We thank you for applying this to our lives. We love you, God. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.